Well, we're now going to turn to what's going to be our focus for the next three weeks. And if you missed the announcement, if you want to hear part two of this series, you're not going to be with us here, but you're going to come and join us at the Jumeirah Creekside Hotel at three and five o'clock tomorrow. Uh, not, not tomorrow. Nobody's going to be there tomorrow. Next Friday. I have no idea what's happening tomorrow. You figure that out. But 3 and 5 p.m. next week, we'll see you at the Jumeirah Creekside. But what we're doing over the next three weeks is just looking at one verse. Just looking at one verse. And that's from 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Let me read that to you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That's it. That's going to be what we look at for the next three weeks. 23 words. 23 words of pure theology. You see, what Paul's doing here at the end of 2 Corinthians, he's, he's reached the end of his instructions for the Corinthians, his counsel for the Corinthians, his teaching to the Corinthians. And what Paul's doing in these words is he's, he's closing off his book simply trying to give them a blessing. In this benediction, he's trying to remind them of the truth of what they know about God and receive it as a blessing. So what Paul is doing here is pure theology. He's looking back across what he's told them about who God is. And he's actually even looking further back from beyond 2 Corinthians into all of what he knows from the law and the prophets and from what Jesus taught. And he's giving us who God is. So Paul is being a theologian. A theologian is someone who seeks to understand the nature of God, seeks to understand who he is and what our world should be in light of who he is. And what Paul is doing here is he's actually asserting one way in which we know who is a good theologian and who's a bad one. What he's giving us is the doctrine of the Trinity. Our triune God, three Tri, united, yun, triune, trinity, we believe as Christians in one God who is eternally existent in three distinct but co-equal persons. Now, that was a bit thick, and so in case you need a refresher on the doctrine of the Trinity, or maybe you've never even heard it before, you're coming in here thinking, what did I get myself into? I went ahead and, and popped two uh, statements on the Trinity into your bulletin. So if you look on page three of your bulletin, you'll see two statements on the Trinity. One comes from our statement of faith as a church. The other comes from a ministry called the Gospel Coalition. Let me read to you what we have put in our document that outlines what we believe as a church in our statement of faith. We say this, we believe that there is only one God who exists eternally as three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each is fully God and equal in every divine perfection and executing distinct but harmonious offices in the great work of redemption. This is our God, the one true God, the triune God, the Trinity. Now again, some of you I know, even just already, you're kind of sitting back in your chairs thinking, okay, this is going to be a theology lecture. Well, no, it's not. And yes, it is. 
Uh, no, it's not because what we do here at Redeemer, our primary aim is always to take you into the Bible and expose what's there to you and to let you see it expositional preaching. And so that's what I really want to do as we look at this verse is I want you to know what Paul was saying in this verse. I want you to see it. I want to expose this verse to you. So no, it's not just a theology lecture. We're, we're here for a bit of Bible preaching. But yes, it is a theology lecture in that what Paul is doing here is theologizing. Paul is telling us about who God is, and so if we are going to understand this, we are best served by not just looking at these 23 words, but looking at everything that we can know about who God is to understand what Paul is saying in this verse. So, yes, we are going to do a bit of theology. But my confidence is this, is that whether you know it or not, you are a theologian. You are a theologian. Maybe you didn't know that. You see, everybody approaches life with some idea of who God is, some idea of how the world is made up and who's in charge of it. That's theology. And you approach the scriptures with your theology in mind, and you approach your life with your theology in mind. You are a theologian. The question is, are you a good one? Are you a good theologian? Do you operate according to the truth of who God is, or do you operate according to something else? And again, what Paul is doing here in 2 Corinthians is he's giving us a standard for what a good theologian is, is that a good theologian is a Trinitarian theologian. A Trinitarian theologian. Because in, in this verse, what we saw was we saw all three members of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And before we get really into it, I just really, I want you to hear my heart for you as one of the pastors of this church. As we, over the next three weeks, look at the doctrine of the Trinity, my goal here is not for you to learn a bunch of new words so that you can impress your friends with your theological knowledge. That's not the goal. And my goal is not to deaden your soul uh, by just throwing a bunch of terms at you and, and boring you to death, and so you have no idea what, which, uh, what to do, just when can we go to lunch? That's not the goal. The goal is that you would rejoice in your salvation because the God of the Bible is executing, is, is delivering salvation to us, and it's a Trinitarian salvation. Our gospel is a Trinitarian gospel. We can't understand the gospel fully unless we understand how the Father and the Son and the Spirit are working together. And I want your hearts to be filled with praise to this God because I believe that as you understand who God is, that will fill you with Trinitarian praise of worship of the one true God. So that's why we're studying the Trinity. We're studying the Trinity to be good theologians, but we're studying the Trinity for life, to know who God is. And we're on hallowed ground as we study the Trinity in the story of Scripture and in, in the story of church history, people that distort who God is, who get it wrong, who intentionally make images of who He is, the strictest of punishment, punishments await them. 
So I want us to know the truth of who God is and how we're going to do that uh, for the rest of our time this morning. I'm going to ask and answer two questions. Two questions for us this morning. We'll spend more time on the first. The first is, is God truly triune? That's going to be the question. Is God truly triune? And the second one, does the Father truly love us? And the first, we're, we're going to think theologically from Scripture on this doctrine of the Trinity. And then in answering the second, we're going to come to start to see how the Trinity works in our salvation as we reflect on the Father's love. So is God truly triune? Well, one of the church fathers, Augustine, he said this about the Trinity. He said, in no other subject is error more dangerous or inquiry more laborious. And I have to tell you, after studying it for this sermon and before that, I agree with him. This is a dangerous subject, like I was saying. We can't get this wrong. If we get this wrong, we get God wrong. And it's also a difficult subject. It's laborious. It's, it's difficult. It's, it's obscure. The doctrine of the Trinity is essential, but at times unclear in the Scripture. A lot of people get into error as they try to figure this whole Trinity thing out. Maybe you've heard some of those analogies for what the Trinity is. Someone's trying to explain the Trinity to you, and they say, well, the Trinity is like an egg. You have the shell, you have the white, you have the yolk. Three, one, Trinity. No. No, that's heresy. Because at the same time, they are not the same substance. Although they are an egg, the shell is not the same substance as the yolk, which is not the same substance as the white. They are very different things. They are distinct. They are unlike. What is actually happening here is a form of tritheism. Three gods, just in close proximity. So that illustration doesn't work. What about this one? Maybe, maybe you've heard this illustration, that the Trinity is like water. That the Trinity is like water. We have water, and a molecule of water can be, uh, can be liquid. And then if you make it real cold, it can be ice. And then if you make it real hot, it can be steam. It can turn into a, a gas. So, the Trinity, right? One thing, three different things. No. That's modalism. Modalism is when we look at God and we say he is one God, and at different times he operates in different ways. Sometimes God the Father is on the scene, and then he steps behind the curtain and changes clothes, and the Holy Spirit comes on the scene. And then he steps behind the curtain and comes out, and it's Jesus. That's modalism. That's heretical. That's not what the Bible teaches. We could go into other illustrations, Arianism, partialism, docetism, other isms. None of these illustrations or isms work to describe who God is as triune. One theologian, John Frame, he's an extremely intelligent and extremely verbose theologian. He's written literally thousands of pages of theological reflection. If you see his books on, the, on the, somebody's shelf, they're always really thick. But even John Frame, with all of his words, says this about the Trinity. He says, I think some theologians exaggerate 
what we know about the Trinity. Much of that the Bible teaches about the Trinity is very mysterious. We must bow in humility as we enter into this holy realm. I think John Frame is right. The Bible does not try to explain the Trinity to us. The Bible simply tells us that the Trinity is what it is. When God seeks to explain himself to us, he doesn't give us an illustration. He tells us about the Trinity. So what we need is not better illustrations about the Trinity. What we need is to know our God better. What we need is to look in the Scriptures, not for cute illustrations that make it make sense to our brain. What we need to do is look in the Scripture and see the beauty and the mystery of who God has revealed himself to be as triune. So where do we see this in Scripture? Where, where do we see this idea of one God in three persons? Well, well first, we need, we need to see that God is one. I, I really want to establish that, that Christians are monotheists. We believe there is one God, period, full stop. There is one God. And we do that because that's what the Bible teaches from the Old Testament, from the earliest pages of when God reveals himself in spoken word at length, and uh, look, look, looking at Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, this is what it says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Those words are, are called the Shema from the first word there. Hear, Shema, Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Ehad. This would have been the most important prayer that every person in Judaism would have learned. And even to this day, it's an essential tenet of their faith. Most children would have been taught every night to say it before they go to bed. It would have been on the walls in, in, in plaques and in, in decorations. This was known by every Jew. It is an essential part of Old Testament theology that we worship one God. And it's also an essential part of New Testament theology. This is repeated and affirmed throughout the New Testament, starting with Jesus himself. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus is asked by, I believe it's the Pharisees, and he's asked, what is the greatest commandment? What's the most important commandment? And Jesus responds first by not giving a commandment, but first reminding them who God is. He says this, Jesus replied, this is the most important. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He repeats exactly what the Shema was. He, he repeats exactly what they would have believed is the most essential component of who God is. Jesus says, that's the way it is. That's the case. The New Testament writers after Christ also affirm the same thing. We could look at Paul. Paul says there's one God in Romans 3. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through the same faith. Same thing in 1 Corinthians 8. So about eating food, sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. James, James affirmed that God is one. James 2, you believe that God is one. Good for you. He goes on to say that even the demons believe that. Everybody knows that God is one. First Peter writes with the understanding of there being one God. In First Peter 4, 
as good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in in order that in everything God may be glorified. There's no sense in any of the New Testament writings that the New Testament authors had any idea that they were now worshiping three different gods. You cannot read the New Testament. Indeed, you can't read the Bible faithfully and see that what is being taught is anything other than we worship one God. The Bible is monotheistic. Therefore, Christians are monotheistic. We believe in one God. What about three? So if we're that strong on there being one God, then what's all this stuff about there being three? Trinity, where does that come from? Well, we can see that first by noting that those that are mentioned as being divine, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they all carry the same essential characteristics of divinity, of being God. We have the Father, but then we also have Jesus. So Jesus, in Colossians chapter 1, is is noted as as being eternal, having existed before the beginning of time. Colossians 1 even says that everything that was created was created through Christ. Revelation, the book of Revelation couldn't be clearer when Jesus himself says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Well, that's either blasphemy or Jesus is God. It can't be both. Either either Jesus is God and he's telling the truth in the book of Revelation and throughout his testimony of himself in the Gospels, or Jesus is a liar. He's telling the truth. Jesus is God. The the authors of the Bible believe that. Jesus believed that. He has the qualities of God. He is eternal. He is the one who can create. He is all-powerful. He has all authority. Jesus is divine. He is God. The Spirit, likewise, is also God. He's also divine. In Hebrews 9, we see that the Spirit is eternal, He's referred to as the eternal spirit. In 1 Corinthians 2, the spirit is said to know the mind of God. 1 Peter kind of elaborates on that when he says that the Holy Spirit is the one revealing to us the things of God into which angels even long to look. So the Holy Spirit is someone who knows what God knows. That's impossible unless you're God. No one knows the secret things of the Lord. Unless you are God, unless the Holy Spirit is God, and that is what he is. The Holy Spirit is omnipresent. He dwells in all believers simultaneously. Just like the Son, the Holy Spirit is said on the authoritative word of God to have all of the characteristics that qualify him as divine, as God. So from that, we have to conclude as Christians that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit our divine, our God. One God, three persons. So that's thinking about it in terms of qualities, in terms of categories. What about in Scripture, you say, you want to see a verse that pulls this out and we see this in operation. John chapter 20. In John chapter 20, 
John ends his gospel by saying this, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So at first you might think, well, that doesn't sound very Trinitarian. I only hear Jesus there, that, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But this, this is a powerfully Trinitarian goal that John has for his letter. He, he wants you to believe in what? Believe in Jesus as the Son. The Son of who? The Son of the Father. And, and what's going to happen when you believe that Jesus is the Son of the Father, the Son of God? Well, you're going to receive life. John chapter 6 says life comes by the Spirit. That life comes by the Spirit. And in John chapter 10, Jesus himself says, I and the Father are one. So what John's doing here is he's saying uh, that these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Son of the Father, that you may believe and have life by the Spirit in his name. This is the Trinity operating harmoniously in the work of redemption. The Father by his will in love predestining those who will believe that through Christ they may have new life in the Spirit. Here's another look. Matthew 28. You remember when Jesus was calling his disciples? He was commissioning them out to make disciples before he resurrected. Remember what he told them? He said to go therefore and make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's significant. If you, if you look into the language there, what most commentators would say is that it is significant that it's not a plural there, that, that the names of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as if there are three of them, but he says he, he wants them to be baptized under one name, under one authority. There's one badge that is who they are to live their lives under. It's the one God, Yahweh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus was saying that our Christian life should be marked not by polytheism, not by three gods, but it should be marked by Trinitarian discipleship, understanding who the Father is, understanding the Son and the Holy Spirit. And lastly, another text, although there's many more we can look at, but in our, the one that we're particularly focused on this, these, these weeks is 2 Corinthians 13. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Again, as, as Paul sits back and reflects on how can I bless the Corinthians? How can I leave them with what's most important? He reminds them of who God is. And who is God? He's Christ. God is Jesus Christ. He's the Lord. And the, the love of God is the love of the Father. If you read John 17, that's all over the place. That the love that Jesus has is the love that he and the Father have with each other. The love that we have is, is the love that we have because he first loved us. So we see the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the love of the Father, God, 
and then the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. This, this verse does not make sense unless all parts of those shape the one true God of the Bible. This is a Trinitarian blessing. Well, like I said, the Bible does, does not acknowledge for us the difficulty of the Trinity. It doesn't say, so Paul doesn't write that uh, verse and then say, okay, guys, I, I know the Trinity stuff's a little complicated, so let me step to the side here and explain it to you. The Bible just presents it to us. And so our, our calling as good theologians is to not go to the Bible and insist for it to make sense to us and say, God, explain yourself. I've got some questions. But our goal is to go to the Bible and say, what does this say? And now how can I make sense of the world in light of the Bible? How can I go to the world and say, explain yourself, because this is the truth. And as we look into who God is, as we look into the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we see them working. We see what the Trinity is so that we can apply it to our lives. And that's what I want to do in answering the second question briefly. Does the Father truly love us? I, I'm asking the question because in our verse, in 2 Corinthians 13, Paul is saying that he does. Paul's speaking of the Father, and he, he says that the Father loves. He, he thinks of one way to describe the Father, one thing that he wants to remind the Corinthians of that, that, that is exemplary of the Father, and what he thinks of is he thinks of his love. I wonder for you over the last week, or maybe as you came in here this morning and you, your mind was reminded of spiritual things and you, oh, I'm, a, I'm going to church, I'm thinking about God. What was your first thought as, as you think of God? Do you think of him as, as a loving father? Uh, I was reading uh, this last week. So when uh, Winston Churchill became prime minister of England, he, he went in there to see King George VI. They were having a get-to-know-you time, and King George asked Winston Churchill a question about his father, and maybe this relates to how you feel about God, because Winston Churchill was, was raised in boarding schools. So he didn't know his parents. They were uh, very absent from his life, and so King George VI said uh, to Churchill, you know, uh, tell me about your father growing up, and Churchill said, my father, my father was like God, always busy elsewhere. Maybe that's how you feel about God. You feel like in your daily life, yeah, God's there. He's around somewhere, but doesn't really impact me. He doesn't seem to care. Or maybe when you think about God, the first thing that comes to your mind is actually a spirit of fear. What comes to your mind is, man, I've messed up this week. There's no way that God even wants me to come this morning, come to church. There's no reason that I should even be in this room. We think of the Father, and what we think of is this person up in heaven who's just saying, why can't you get your act together? 
Why can't you stop? Why can't you just be less sinful? Just wait till the judgment day. I'm going to get you. Is that how our Father looks at us? Now, I want to be careful that I'm not making light of anything. There is an eternal judgment that awaits those that are outside Christ. But for those of us who are in Christ, our Father wants to be known by us as a loving Father. Paul is saying this, and he's already shown it to us in the book of 2 Corinthians. We can look throughout the entire book, but I just want to look quickly at at the first chapter. When Paul is thinking of how the Father loves, he tells us what it looks like. In verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Our God is a God of comfort. As Paul was writing to these Corinthians, he knew that they were having a hard time. He knew that they were struggling in sin. He knew that he had things that he needed to address with them. But the first thing he wanted to remind them of is that this God, this loving Father, is a comforting God. I don't know what's on your plate this morning. I don't know what your struggles are, your afflictions. Maybe it's like Paul who was persecuted who was suffering because of his preaching for Christ. Maybe your suffering is something else. Maybe you, your, your suffering is physical. Maybe your suffering is relational with other believers. Maybe your suffering is loneliness. Dubai can be a lonely place. Life can be lonely if we're apart from God. We're separated from him and we're feeling the anguish of loneliness And God comes to us, again, not first and foremost to flatten us, but to comfort us. Like Jesus with the the woman uh, of, of ill repute who comes to wash his feet. He doesn't say, get away from me. What are you doing? Don't touch me. He comforts. That's his love. Paul also mentions in in 2 Corinthians that God delivers. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 9, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul was was in a circumstance where his life was literally threatened. He thought his time was up. He thought he was going to die. He comforted himself. God brought that comfort to him through remembering that God raises from the dead. Now, God's resurrection power is an act of love. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ By grace, you've been saved. God loved you. You were dead. You you were dead. You had nothing to offer. You were dead. 
an enemy, a dead enemy. And yet God loved you. He loved me. He didn't treat us according to what our sins deserve, but he looked at us in his love and he raised us from the dead. And that's now as Paul is in this place of fear, he's remembering that his God is someone who in love raises people from the dead. John 3.16, famous verse. Many of you could quote it to me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him won't perish, but will have everlasting life. You know, we're, we're, we're often so caught up in thinking of the father as the wrathful judge up there in heaven, ready to just destroy us. And while that is a fear that we ought to have if we reject this great salvation that he's offering us, what he's offering us is his love. He's saying, I love you. Believe. Believe in Jesus Christ who I've sent. I want to raise you from the dead by the power of my spirit. We also see God's love in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 in that God is the one who establishes us in Christ Verse 21, and has anointed us who has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. God comforts. He comes to those who are afflicted. He comes to those who are suffering. He raises them from the dead, reminds them of their resurrection from the dead. And then not only does he do that, but he establishes them in Christ through the power of his spirit. Do you see again? The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit working together harmoniously in the work of redemption. In 1 John 3, it says this, See what kind of love the Father has. See what kind of love the Father has. He's given it to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. So my challenge to you today, my friends, is, is see what kind of love the Father has. See what kind of love that he has. Become his child. And if you are his child, and you've gotten caught up in thinking of him in a different way, when you think of the Father, you, you don't think of a loving Father. Then see what kind of love that he has for you. He's made you his child. In the riches of his grace, he's poured out to you love. He longs to comfort you. He longs to remind you of his resurrection power through Christ by the power of his spirit. You know, earlier I read to you that thought from Augustine when he said that in no other subject is error more dangerous or inquiry more laborious. Well, he, he actually didn't end there. He ends with this thought. Or the discovery of truth more profitable. The discovery of truth more profitable. That's what we're after. We want the profitable discovery of truth as we look at who God is. So let's pray to that end. Let's pray together. 
Our Father, we want to know the truth because we know that the truth sets us free. Lord, thank you for telling us who you are. Thank you for opening our eyes by your spirit to see the beauty of Christ in which we could know your great love with which you loved us before the dawn of time. Father, we confess these things are too high for us, and yet we rejoice in them. By faith, Lord, by faith that's a gift from you, we long to rejoice in you for all of eternity. So thank you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.